Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Seton Smith. And as a black man, I used to have to wear very specific running clothes because uh, I don't know if y'all have seen the news. Running, people, black people running uh, scares people. That and more. But before that, did you know that our school, the Story Studio, offers corporate workshops? We've done customized workshops for Google, Citibank, Pfizer, USA Today, IBM, the New York Stock Exchange, American Express, and so many more. These workshops are amazing for team building and onboarding. We can help you with your business product launch narratives, your personal anecdotes for networking, your presentations, and so much more. And it's all at thestorystudio.org. And did you know that Risk nearly ended a few months ago? The economic downturn hit us so hard. We're now lucky to be breaking even most months. There's 20 people who work on this show and at the Story Studio. And one thing that has helped us immensely is that people who love what we do pitched in to help keep us running at patreon.com slash risk. We still very, very, very much need more help. So go see all the perks of becoming a member at patreon.com slash risk. Like this week, I'm uploading a Thanksgiving Day check-in that I recorded where for almost an hour, I reflected on what I'm grateful for this year. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is LCD Sound System behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Run for Your Life. These are four really interesting characters. There's a lot of adventures happening. This is a fun one today. As for me, I am on day number one of being on ADHD medication. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm feeling positive. I'm I'm very much focused lately on new attitudes, new strategies, new possibilities for 2021. (laughs) Seeing as how attitudes and strategies and everything else for 2020 only only got me so far but for 2021 you know we'll we'll have a new president uh, we'll be working on some new projects around here and i'm working on new attitudes new strategies new explorations so if any of you out there have really struggled with adhd but you really worked at it you got yourself a coach or a therapist, you found a book that changed everything, you've discovered apps or developed new habits or found a a perfect to-do list, whatever it is, let me know. I'm very curious to hear from people about this. Another thing we're doing a lot of thinking about lately is how to do more social stuff with the risk fans. You know, there might be ways that we could use Zoom. We still want to do our live stream shows, of course, but there might be other ways we could use Zoom to spend quality time with you guys. And I don't know, maybe some of you have some ideas around all that. Now, speaking of our live streams, our next one is going to be on December 4th at 10 p.m. Eastern. This one is not to be missed. It's our winter holidays live stream, and we have a hell of a cast. We have fantastic stories. It's going to be a real treat. 10 p.m. Eastern. Tickets are limited, so get your tickets now. That is all at risk-show.com slash tour. In a little bit, we're going to hear something from one of our favorite comedians in New York City, Seton Smith. Before that, something from one of our favorite storytellers in New York City, Sandy Marks. But before Sandy, we're going to hear from someone who's never been on the show before, Michael Shibley, who has his own sports podcast called The Man in the Arena, and you can find him on Twitter at Michael underscore Shibley. Here's Michael now with a story we call It Must Be Nice. Be nice. So I work at a boutique bowling alley here in East Tennessee. It's a great job. I love doing it. I run the desk. I assign lanes. I give out shoes. And I also do a lot of mechanical work on the pin setters when they break down and do daily maintenance and what have you. But on a lot of our busy nights, it can get pretty hectic down there as everybody's going around, getting drinks, running food, all the stuff. Love doing it. It's a great place. Because of the pandemic, we've had to scale down our operations. Only half of our lanes are able to run as we try and keep everybody socially distanced. And also, we keep up with the county policy, which is when you're in an establishment, if you are seated at a table, or in our place, if you are seated at a lane, 
you can take your masks off. But if you're up and moving around, the masks have to be on. That includes the bar. There's no chairs or stools at the bar. You're just there to order a drink. So the only reason you're up there, have your mask on so you're not breathing on our bartenders. And of course, we're all wearing masks as employees. And I've always loved the volunteer spirit that we have in East Tennessee. I'm an alum of the University of Tennessee, and everybody's been there for each other. I remember that as a freshman after 9-11, seeing everybody just come together, no matter your differences. But now you've got this polarization that so many people have as a pandemic has become politicized and mask wearing has become politicized. And it's frustrating. And I've seen the clips of different people just refusing to wear masks on YouTube. being allowed into the store because I'm being discriminated against. Because you would not like to wear a mask. I work for Costco and I'm asking this member to put on a mask because that is our company policy. So either wear the mask. And I'm not doing it because I woke up in a free country. But I just never thought it would happen to me. But it did a couple of days ago. And it was very frustrating. A group of middle-aged people came down, men and women, some of them wearing masks, some of them not. And we always tell them, hey, put your masks on. And they kind of just brush us off a little bit as they kind of put them on. And then they would go to the bar and they pull the masks down. And the bartenders, bless their hearts, keep telling them, hey, put your masks on. So they finally would because we were not going to give them drinks unless they had their masks on. Then they go to a table, but they keep wandering around the establishment without their masks. Our manager says, hey, put your masks on. Finally... I guess they get perturbed enough and decide to leave and they walk right by the bowling desk where I'm standing, minding my own business toward the exit. One of them, gentleman, looks me right in the eye and is like, the fuck you looking at? I said, nothing. And at that point, our manager steps in right next to me. He's like, you guys got to leave. Leave now. And this guy just gets all worked up and says, you know what? Fuck you and your vote for Biden. Trump 2020. And it was just, I was channeling my inner Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse and just be nice. I was telling them, have a wonderful evening. And of course, that just leads to a whole round of a bunch of them telling me to go fuck myself and calling my manager all types of other colorful language, which is just awful. And then the last guy to leave says, I don't have to leave. He had his mask on. It's like, I don't have to leave. I haven't done anything wrong. And our manager's like, no, you were part of the group. Everybody has to leave. Give me the beer and you can get out. And as he goes to hand her the beer, he decides to squeeze it and just spray beer everywhere, which is just such a childish thing to do. You don't take things personally. Again, as I'm channeling Patrick Swayze, but it's hard when I've got my parents and my in-laws are all in the danger zone age-wise And most of them aren't taking good care of themselves. And it just frustrates me to try and take care of everybody around me the best I can. And these people just blow it in your face because of whatever their dumbass reasoning inside their head. It must be nice not to care if they get their loved ones sick and they end up dying. It must be nice. Simple rules. One, 
Never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. And three, be nice. If somebody gets in your face and calls you a cocksucker, I want you to be nice. Okay. Ask him to walk. Be nice. I want you to be nice until it's time to not be nice. always had this incredibly dark fascination with major car accidents. You know, like the ones on the side of a highway where there's a fire truck and there's four ambulances. I need to see inside. I need, I know it's not nice. I know I'm not the only one. I know some of you out there also want to see what the hell's going on inside the back of those ambulances. I want to see something. I don't know what, but something. And that's why we rubberneck, right? That's the whole point of traffic. We need to know. I want to know. I need details. Never see them, but I want to know. And I've had this fascination since I'm really little. I had, like when my little friends, when I was like seven, eight years old, my girlfriends, they would fantasize that they would one day live in some Barbie dream house fantasy lifestyle, like in a real house. I was fantasizing that I would have a broken arm or leg. That was my fantasy. That's all I wanted. I wanted to have a limb broken in a cast so I would go to school and everybody would sign it because I was that pathetic and I had so few friends. I thought, well, if I had a cast, people would need to sign it because I would stick it in front of their faces. It's sad, I know, it's really pathetic, but that's who I was, that's something I wanted. And I have to say as a side note, when my kids were really little, they used to play this game where they would wrap themselves like mummy in toilet paper and pretend that they were completely broken. They came from a broken home. <laughs> I'm a broken person. And when I was older and my children were growing up and I had three of these little shitheads, three of them <laughs> under the age of seven and I was working like 60 hour weeks, when I would walk home from Metro North, from the train station to our house in the suburbs, I would have this fantasy now, I know this sounds crazy, but don't judge, okay? It's risk, you don't judge. I'm walking home, uh, like on the street, because it's really quiet in our neighborhood, and I have this fantasy that I will get hit by a slow-moving vehicle. I don't want to be killed, I like my life, but I want to be just injured a bit so I can take a nap for like a week. I want to lie down. I just, I needed to lie down, and I needed someone to give me flowers and a pie maybe, I don't know. But this was sort of like the way I was like, this was, was in my head. And luckily this never happened. And I grew out of it and my kids grew up and now they're on their own and they don't need me anymore, thank God. And I'm, you know, I'm rested, okay? That's really what I'm trying to say. So <laughs> coming this year, this January, I kept seeing this commercial for Peloton machines. Now I know you've seen it. There's this sort of sad faced, really pretty girl and she's on the machine because her husband bought it for her. And a lot of people were making fun of the ad. But when I saw it, I thought she's onto something. I'm not sad, 
but I can look better if I got on that goddamn machine because I haven't been exercising. And I found out that in my building, I live in Brooklyn, we live in one of these nice bougie buildings, they have a gym with a Peloton machine. So it was like mid-January, I decided to go down there and give it a spin, literally. So I go down there, I'm all excited, I wear like my fashion leggings that I've never worn before and a t-shirt, and I get on that thing, and it takes me about an hour to figure out how to work it, because I'm fucking old. But I finally <laughs> figure it out and I start doing it and it's great. If you've not done it, I highly recommend find a Peloton or any kind of bike like that where there's music and some jazzy chick in a spandex costume and you kind of do your thing. So I did it and I got an amazing workout and I finally get off the bike. It was a, like at least 10 minutes, okay? I really worked out. <laughs> so I get off that bike, I'm in a sweat. I think I might have a stroke. I'm so exhausted, but it's, I love this thing. I get off and I'm thinking, yes, yes, I'm gonna do this three times a week. I'm gonna have abs of steel. I'm gonna have Jane Fonda legs. I, it's gonna be incredible. And I'm just so buoyant. And I put my clothes back on. And I leave the building, I live in Greenpoint, and I decide that I need to go on my errands, okay? So I have my coat on, it's, you know, it's freezing, it's January, and my bag with all my crap in it, and I happen to have a car, so I'm walking to the car which is parked on the street, right in our neighborhood, easy to find parking, I don't know why, but it is, and I'm walking, minding my own beeswax, and as I'm walking, I don't know how it happens, but I am hit by an actual moving vehicle. Whoa. A car, an Uber hits me on my left side and I go flying in the air. And this was not the dream that I was expecting when I was a young mother. This is real. This is a car accident. Now, while it's happening, I go into some sort of shock and I become like Roadrunner or a cartoon character. And I have this feeling that I can run or bicycle out of the accident. So I'm in the air, I'm airborne and I'm pedaling. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna get out of this. I'm gonna be fine. Like I don't, it hasn't, like my brain and my body haven't connected yet. So I do that kind of Flintstone bowling thing, like and I go, go up in the air, but I go flying and I land, like I splat on the ground and I take the entire fall, I absorb it with my right side, mostly my foot. Somehow I know not to hit my head. I'm a Jew, we know these things, don't hit your head. So I don't hit my head. I land on my right side and I don't even feel the pain yet because I'm not there yet, but I'm like, I look like a swastika. I'm just out there and my handbag has gone flying and all the contents of the bag have gone flying. So you can see like old Altoids and my chapstick and my phone and one of those long CVS, you know, ticker. It's like a crop circle of the saddest ticker tape parade you've ever seen. It's just sad and it's just out there and I am still in shock. And I, in my shock, I do the one thing because I am a woman who watches forensic files. I mean, I am religious about this shit. And I think I'm gonna have to get a picture of the license plate and I see his brake lights go on. And I'm thinking in that moment, even though I still don't hurt yet, I'm thinking, okay, he's either gonna back up and run me over, hide <laughs> the evidence, or he's gonna leave, like hit and run accident, or I don't know what'll happen, but I gotta get his license plate. So I get my phone, I get off a shot, and he stops, he gets out, and so do two passengers in the back seat. He's not alone. And the passengers live in my building. I don't know them, but we have witnesses now. And I am still, 
I don't know where I am, but I still don't hurt yet because it's only been about 20 seconds. So then I start doing this thing where I become Karen from HR and I start yelling rhetorical things like, why did you hit me? Don't you see where you're going? What were you thinking? It's, you know, like none of this makes any sense. I mean, what is the answer to any of these questions? And then all of a sudden they come running towards me and I start to cry because it starts to hurt because it is very bad. I don't know what has happened, but I know I'm in a lot of pain. And they come over to me and the, one of the passengers says, I'm gonna call 911. And she calls 911 and I'm lying there. And then I go into me, like my zone, but a very exaggerated version of me because I'm still in shock. And I do this thing that's so annoying. I'm so codependent. I'm such a people pleaser. I start saying to these two lovely people, oh no, it's okay. I'm really sorry. I don't want to keep you. I know you have to be somewhere. Go, go. It's fine. It's sort of like, I'll put my head in the oven when you get home, take it out. I'm fine. <laughs> go. It's really okay. I'm going to be fine. And they're like, no, you're not fine. We have to call an ambulance. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'll be all right. Really, y'all should have to be somewhere. Aren't you late? You were in an Uber. You got Meanwhile, the Uber driver at this point, he looks like he's going to cry. And I'm calming him the fuck down because I'm a fucking mother. So I'm saying, oh, honey, accidents happen. I know you didn't mean to hurt me. You did hurt me, but I know you didn't mean to hurt me. And he's starting to cry. He looks like a med student or something. So now we're all crying and I'm lying there. And then an ambulance pulls up in like two minutes. The ambulance comes and the first thing I say is, how did you get here so fast? He says, well, I always idle across the street from your apartment. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of crafty. It's almost like it's the perfect ice cream truck for hypochondriacs who's always there, <laughs> just waiting for someone like me to say I have general malaise or my hip hurts or something. So he's there and he comes out and he's so adorable. He's about my age, but he has this big bushy mustache. He looks like Sam Elliott in a Western. He's sort of like, He's, he's adorable, but I am still going into exaggerated Sandy version. So I start negotiating and I ask, well, how much are you going to cost? I don't think I can afford to get in an ambulance. Aren't you going to be really expensive? I've read articles about you guys. I'm like cheap Karen. So he says, no, 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 no. He says, okay, can you move? Can you get up? And I say, well, let me see. Mm. So I'm still in a swastika and my arm is wet <laughs> and hot and there's something obviously dripping from mm. this. I'm in, I'm in a ski jacket and I can feel it seeping through the jacket. So there's an issue. So I pass out because I might seem like a stoic to no one, obviously. But <laughs> when you're like bleeding out, I was bleeding out, I started to panic. So he says, okay, I think you need an ambulance. And then I realized that my right leg was really pretty seriously injured. So he pulls out the gurney and he's somehow very gingerly, he's so sweet. He puts me on that fucking thing. And then they have all, I don't know if any of you have been in an ambulance, but they strap you in like a piano going to like the fourth floor in your walk up. So he's like strapping me in with all the straps. And I'm crying because it's, it's pretty painful. And then he slides me in, in inside the ambulance. And I'm like, this is like, what? I'm in an ambulance? This is so exciting. I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited even though I'm in a lot of pain. And it's, it's horrifying. And he's so lovely. He finds a way to find all these ice packs. I don't know where he even finds them. He pulls out all these ice packs and he stuffs me when all the parts that are obviously you know, having a problem like my elbows and my legs and my ribs. And he just covers me in ice packs and then he takes masking or electric tape and he just tapes me up. So now I am just completely iced 
and I'm lying there and he puts me in one of those surgical collars and then he does this adorable thing where he checks the back of my head. He said, you know, I'd be really embarrassed if you're bleeding from the head and I don't report this when I get you to the hospital. Adorable. So, okay, so we get on the ambulance and we start going. He has all my information. He has my insurance card and all the other stuff. And as we're going, he says, okay, we're going to Bellevue. Okay, now let me just pause for a minute. Now, I don't know if you're from New York, but if you're from New York and you're a pain in the ass like me, a real dilettante, you don't want to go to Bellevue because that is where people with gunshot wounds go. That is where people who have been in very serious trouble go. I don't want to be in serious trouble. So I'm lying there with my ice packs and I sit up like Reagan in The Exorcist and I say, <laughs> no, no, you're not taking me to Bellevue. And he doesn't oh. even roll his eyes. He doesn't do anything. He does not judge you. The guy's a fucking prince. And he says, well, where would you like to go? It's <laughs> like there's a menu. And I said, well, what are my options? And he said, well, what about NYU? And I say, yes, take me to NYU. I have a friend that works there. That will be perfect. It's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, he's, this is not what he planned that day to have this bitch tell him where to go. But he says, fine. And he's not even judging me. I'm in love. The man is perfect. Except he does say on the way that he gets car sick and he can't face me in the ambulance because he's going to get sick. But that's a minor detail. He's an EMS worker, he can do whatever he wants. So we start going, I have oxygen, I have the collar, I'm all completely iced up. We're going through the Midtown Tunnel. It's so exciting. Of course, you know, my luck, nobody's watching. Nobody's looking in the back of this ambulance because nobody can see us. And he doesn't even put the siren on. I am cheated out of a siren, it's just the lights. <laughs> but he gets me to NYU in what seems like five minutes. I'm sure it's more, but he speeds all the way there. He unloads me. Now he's unloading me, I'm covered in ice, and when he gets me in the hospital, I really basically look like a big trout that came out of the Fulton Fish Market, and he's like delivering me to Citarella's or something. So he like <laughs> shifts me up, and he gets me to the hospital, and it takes a really long time for them to do the intake, because I was supposed to be in Bellevue, and the NYU doctors aren't really like into this idea, because it wasn't his turf, but I'm, I'm ready to say like, fuck y'all, you know who I am, I'm Sandy fucking March, you're gonna see me. And it works, believe me, everyone out there, just so you know, like if you're ever in trouble, just don't say my name, say your own, but whatever, they will see you. So anyway, so they finally get me into a, one of those, you know, like those little rooms with the curtain, and my husband, I text him, he comes, and I'm in dire pain. They give me a t one Tylenol after five hours. And I was just crying like a small, small girl. I was so upset. But, you know, finally I had an MRI. And then seven hours later, the orthopedist came in and he told me that I had three broken metatarsals, serious contusions and issues with my elbow, but it hadn't been broken. I bruised a few ribs. I was gonna be fine, it was gonna be a long haul, and he said, and now I'm gonna to have to give you a cast. Dreams can come true, a cast. Okay, so now I'm like, okay, I might be in pain, but I'm getting a fucking cast. So he brings it out, he makes me flip on my stomach, I have to raise my leg, which is not easy. He does the plaster of Paris, He's and already while the cast is going on, I'm thinking, who will be the first one to sign? Where am I getting those magic markers? I'm so excited. Finally, it's like better than a Facebook wall. This is a real cast. He wraps me up, and then right when I think the like, glory days are coming, he takes this kind of ace bandage fabric, and he wraps the cast around in a fabric. 
because apparently they don't send you out anywhere into the world and just plaster Paris. They wrap you in some sort of linen shit. So I have now a cast that is not signable. So there is no glory in any of this. And I have to go home with crutches that do not fit. And it is months, I know it'll be months before I can actually use this foot. I mean, it is now, we're in May and I still can't really walk well. But here's the amazing thing. I mean, I've always been kind of a, you know, Pollyanna, you know, throw confetti at anybody. But here's the confetti moment, because this happened on January 20th, okay? And I've been sequestered ever since then, as you can tell by my hostage. Like, I look like a proof of life photo. I mean, I've been indoors this entire time. And I also happen to have an autoimmune disease, and I'm over 60, so I am ripe. I am super ripe for COVID. I mean, I am like a Venus flytrap for that shit. But I haven't been anywhere, I've been home. So somehow, this dude who doesn't know how to drive created an incident where he kind of helped me out a little bit. But I don't think of him as my angel. My angel was that stunning Sam Elliott of a gorgeous EMT dude because he actually cared about me. And I've been looking for him ever since. I go by, when I go outside, I go by that street where I used to idle and he's not there anymore because I think he's moved on to much more important things to do. I mean, COVID has caused these guys to work like dogs. And I worry every day about him because he is, he was like the only calm in the storm. And so I am grateful for him. I wish I could thank him. I can't wait to find him again. I wish all of my friends the best. I want them to stay on the sidewalks, don't go in the street. And if you do, and if you happen to be in Greenpoint, know you're in good hands because I have the best ambulance driver. Thank you. Amazing. Help immediately, Mrs. Fletcher. First help, Fletcher. First help, Fletcher. Immediately, my hand ending help immediately, 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 Mrs. Fletcher. I can't get up. All right, everyone, please welcome to the virtual stage, Seton Smith. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. Appreciate um, everybody coming into this. I want to talk about running. I, mean, I love running. I love running. I started running probably in 2011. I moved to New York. And I was here to be an artist, right? I was going to be a famous comedian. I was going to enjoy my life, try to make it. And then I didn't really make it. And so I needed some kind of a stress endurance. And I found I couldn't drink all the time. So I found that running was a great way to get all that energy out during the day. So I would run, I would write, and then I would run all day. And running was amazing. I didn't, it opened my eyes up. Because I used to be athletic. I do basketball and I do you know, other sports. But I wasn't a team sport guy. I didn't really understand how to you know, be in sync with nobody. But running is great because you can just be free and, you, you know, go at your own pace. Nobody's, you know, pressuring you. You can wear funny clothes. And as a black man, I used to have to wear very specific running clothes because uh, I don't know if y'all have seen the news. Running, people, black people running uh, scares people. So what you have to do, 
I found it's a trick. You can't. You can't. I, uh, some people could just wear old sweaty clothes, old sweats and stuff, just and run. But you can you imagine me wearing an old hoodie and sweats, you know, running at you in the middle of the night. You're not gonna think, you know, fitness. <laughs> You're gonna think, ah, boom, boom, boom. And you know. So, anyways, I used to wear the tightest clothes I could wear. Like I wear the shortest shorts I could find. If I can get like a little bit of ball meat out, the safer I found everybody felt. So uh, it'd be me, ball meat, and I just run. I'd run, and I found that. <laughs> I'd run and I'd also be a little hungover. Here's a little trick. If you don't run and like you don't like running, like, oh, I feel bad, here's a trick. Get drunk the night before and I find if you run the next day, you feel better with every step just because the fluids are going through your body. So <laughs> that's a run. A run's great for me. Get me. I like the fashion. I like the drinking. And it also helped me deal with my overwhelming sense of depression, which is, you know, I'm a comedian and that's just going to be there. So here's the thing that happened. So years, I stopped, I stopped running for a bit. Years later, I get a call from the New York Comedy Club. They're like, hey, man, I want to sponsor you. You want to be sponsored to be in the New York City Marathon? I'm like, I, I mean, that wasn't on my to-do list, but why not? Let's put it on there, right? <laughs> That's kind of cool. But it's just, it, it was cool to me at first, but then I thought, ah, I don't know. I don't, I like running by myself just because I'm a weirdo. Running by myself, it's me, it's zen. It's me connecting to the earth. You know, I can run in the woods by myself and just... Side note, did y'all know if you, you know how like you're driving and you see deer get hit by cars, you go, ah, it's bad. But if you ever run in the woods, those <laughs> deers are like cars. They weigh a ton and they're really fast. And if you ever have a deer run by you, you don't think they see you. You turn into the jealous. Anyways, I like the woods. I like running. It was for me. But they were like, when you do, he was like, you want to do the marathon? I'm like, ah, that's just, you know, being around people. And marathon people to me before never really seemed that cool. Cool. I'm going to say cool. They didn't seem cool. They just seemed like a bunch of, uh, you know, just very skinny people running on the side of mountains uh, looking kind of crazy and stupid to me. Like, I, as a kid, I never really admired marathons. I just saw them as interruptions to my cartoons. I was always frustrated with them. I also thought, well, it also costs like, what, a billion dollars to do this marathon, and I ain't going to pay for it, so <laughs> let's try it. So I'm, I'm skeptical going to the marathon. I'm skeptical. I get well, whatever. Just going there, kind of not in a good mood. But then I get to the Javits Center to pick up my badge. And that's when I noticed things aren't what I thought they'd be. Because the energy there wasn't what I thought it'd be. I thought it'd be like douchebags. Like, what's up? I'm about to run. I'm about to get my run on. But nah, I felt like, I don't know if you've ever been to a Jesus camp. I used to go to those growing up. You know, a lot of religious camps. A lot of prayer. A lot of hugs. A lot of, you know, abuse that we're not really going to talk about. A lot of those. And that's what it was. It felt like that. A lot of hugs. A lot, a lot of prayer circles. There were several prayer circles at the 2018 marathon. I ain't know that was the, those were a thing. And I ain't think I'd be standing next to them just feeling the energy. So <laughs> I was feeling that, man. Uh, going to the marathon the day of. Also, the electricity in the air. I'm walking there. I almost felt like I was going to war just because I was walking to a, the Staten Island Ferry onto a ship. I'm seeing other people wearing uniforms. I mean, they were just, you know, jogging outfits, but they still felt like I was part of something. <laughs> and if you see somebody else wearing jogging uniforms, every other day you ignore them. But today, for some reason, you're like, oh, my God, are you going to run a marathon? I, I'm going to run a marathon. Oh, my God. Have you ever run marathons before? And suddenly we have a lot of things to talk about as we <laughs> go do the same thing. And we're getting on the ship. We're listening to sirens. And we're getting on this boat. And then we get on from this boat. And we get on a bus. <laughs> all to the same location so we can go launched off into this campaign. <laughs> I met another old man, old white guy who was really nice. Another guy. I never talked to on the street. But for some reason, we're on the bus about to go running and he's all like I've never have you ever run before I'm like I've never run before oh my god we're about to go running we're about to go running I don't know I was in a tizzy um somebody the siren went off they were like nobody pee off the bridge which I didn't even know that was an option 
Uh, <laughs> I got to the campsite. There was, uh, there was, you know, there was porta potties, obviously. There was medic tents. Uh, even though I don't know why they had medic tents when the, the race didn't even start yet, but they already had it out there. Uh, <laughs> we're all just sitting there, just excited, buzzing. And I was there with my friend Liz Mealy, who's a wonderful comic, who's been in the comic for years. And we always, you know, we know each other tangentially a little bit. But for some reason on this race, suddenly we had a whole new connection. And I will say this to everybody who's never, if you've never run a race before, if you've never had a chance to have a five-hour conversation while running, I recommend it. Because you're going to have a lot of things in your soul that you never thought was there. <laughs> and that's what happened. The race goes off and me and Liz are just talking. Suddenly we think we're having a nice just chit-chat talk. And suddenly we're talking about our lives. We're talking about our relationships. We're talking about our childhood. I'm sitting there. I'm crying. And you sit there. you got to realize when you're running, you, all those masks you have in life, you can't think about the mask. All you can think about is breathing. <laughs> breathing and talking. That's your only two options. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there connected. And, and, and I didn't think I needed that, man. But I, I felt it. And the, and the whole atmosphere of the marathon was amazing because you have people on the sides who I never thought about it before. But these are people who get up at five in the morning with liquor, not to run, not to do anything other than to yell at strangers and to root for them to run up across the city. And I thought these people were crazy. These people are angels. These people need medals. I needed every one of those cheers. Every one. Every one of those. You can do it, man. I took it personally. Can I do it? Can I? I was amazing. I remember there was one point where I think I had an orange jacket on and somebody yelled, way to go, orange jacket. Good pace. And I was like, for real, man? I didn't think I needed that, dude. There was one point in the Bronx, there was a man who ran up to me and gave me some Coke. Not like a glass of Coke, not half a glass of Coke. I would say about a swallow of Coke. And it was the best swallow of Coke I had. If you, and I know I keep saying this, but again, if you've never run 20 miles without a Coke, I recommend it. It's going to be tasty as fuck. You're going to feel every bit of them sugars. So I just felt love. There was music. There was dancing. There was just a thing. I felt just alive in the sense of everybody kept saying, you can do it, you can do it. And there's something in my brain was just like, you can do it. What if you in your life actually try to do something in your life? What if you ever gave 100%? And I was like, I don't know when I've given 100%. I got to do this thing. And I look over to Liz like, you know what, Liz? I've been coasting these last 20 miles. You know what? I'm about to gun at these last six miles. She's like, you can do it. I was like, I get you goddamn right. And I opened up and I just start going. I'm like, yeah, I'm about to do this. Somebody even yells, great pace, man. I'm like, yeah, man, because I could do this, baby. And I remember I got to the Red Park, and I don't know if you know where I'm Central Park, there's about to slant, that's how I hit up, and I, I feel that slant, I'm like, oh, I can take this slant, this slant ain't shit, I got it, I get into the park, and there's a slant down, I'm like, uh-oh, the last two miles, is a slant down in the park, I can do this, I can do this, and then suddenly when I hit that hill, my knee was like, nah, man, you, I, don't, I don't think you can do this, and then I, my, it started to buckle, it started to buckle, my knee was just not, it just didn't work like it did, those first 24 miles, it was there, <laughs> and this one, those last two, my, my knee was like, nah, man, we, I don't want to do this no more, I don't know why you think about this, you ain't trying for this shit you don't you don't deserve really to finish this race <laughs> and so i'm just dragging this thing going i can do this i can do this and I, I basically it was a nice crawl across that finish line but it was one of those magnificent crawls i was so proud of myself it felt so good i tweeted about it i did an instagram video and i was pretty much at that point done with the race now here's here's where i think anybody if you haven't listened to anybody at this point listen to this part of the race <laughs> this is the most important part of running a marathon everybody they give out blankets for free. It's very important you get those, take those blankets. Don't say no to the blanket. The blanket's important. I didn't notice. I said no to the blanket because my problem was I ran 26.2 miles into the middle of Central Park and there's no taxis in the middle of Central Park. 
I had to walk out of the park <laughs> to the subway to get home. So I'm pissed off. You know, those 26 two miles were annoying. Those extra two miles to get home fucking really annoyed me. So I'm walking annoyed. I don't, I don't even want the blanket. I don't even care. So I walk onto the subway, just frustrated, mad. Like, I want to go home. I want to go home. And nobody on the subway give me a seat. <laughs> and I sit there. I'm like, I don't even care. I don't care. I'll, I'll stand home. I'll stand. And that's when my body started to cool down. Right. And that's when my body started to shake. And that's when I started to get the shakes. And that's when the blanket came into play because <laughs> your body drops in temperature and starts just moving. around. <laughs> and I'm sitting there just frustrated and stupid, just kind of holding the pole, just shaking. like <laughs> <laughs> Until finally, this wonderful woman stood up. To, she looked at me kind of strangely, like, excuse me, sir. Did you run a marathon just now? <laughs> I'm like. How'd you know? <laughs> and she's like, you need to sit down. <laughs> and she's like, where the fuck's your blanket? You should have a blanket. <laughs> and she sits me down next to her daughter. And then her husband comes over. And they, she tells me her story how she ran a couple of Boston City marathons. And my legs are resting. I just, I don't know. I just felt all day long I had so much kindness in my life that I did not expect. <laughs> and I didn't know I did it. And I didn't know. I needed it. <laughs> That's the crazy part. So when I got home or later that night, you know, usually people like to have beers and drink and sleep all day and all that jazz. You know what I did? Um, I had a nice conversation with my girlfriend. And that was a significant thing because we were breaking up. I was moving out the next month. So we ain't have very many of those things. So I think like, <laughs> that, I don't know, that marathon got to show me a nice kindness in life that I really, really needed. So thank you very much, y'all. <laughs> This is Risk. This is Tom Petty behind me now. And we just heard from Seton Smith, who you can find at seatonsmith.com. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Before that, Sandy Marks was back with us, who you can find at sandyjmarks.com. And before that, that anecdote by Michael Shibley uh, about masks at the bowling alley that was edited by John LaSala. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Guys, we're having an amazing time with these master classes, these short classes that we're now teaching at thestorystudio.org. One coming up is called Storytelling for Job Interviews, taught by Cindy Freeman on November 30th at 2 p.m. Eastern. It's only 60 minutes. And then there's another one coming up taught by Brad Lawrence on December 15th called How to Tell Stories in Which You Were the Villain. That one's only 30 minutes. 2 p.m. Eastern on December 15th at thestorystudio.org. Also, did you know I make these little cameo videos for fans? They're so much fun. I can make a personalized video for you or a friend for their birthday or Christmas, whatever it might be, singing a song, giving some advice, uh, doing an old state sketch, whatever it might be. That is at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from one of my favorite storytellers, Susanna Lee. She's knocked it out of the park every time she's done the show. She was on one of our live streams recently and told this one. You can find Susanna at bradpittdickpicks.com. And here she is now with a story we call The Price of Everything. I'm going to take us back to September of 2006. I'm living in Kansas City alone after leaving my husband a few months before. And I was feeling a little lonely, a little peckish, but I was tired of all the familiar Kansas City bar trash that I'd been shoving up my shame hole. Is that too much? Not shame hole, shame free hole. Uh, and I wanted something new. I wanted something like different, something fun. So I turned to everyone's favorite place on the internet, Craigslist. <laughs> now, back then, you could find anything on there. You could find anything. You could find anyone. You could find anything to do any or anyone to do anything on there. So I'm like deep in the personals and I'm scrolling and I'm clicking and I'm scrolling and I'm clicking and I'm not really finding anything too appealing. And then I see James. He looks fine. Uh, his ad's funny. And so we exchanged some pictures and emails and I invited him over. Now, when I opened the door, it became really obvious that the pictures that he sent were either really, really old or really, really just not him. I deemed James unfuckable. 
he just like the pictures. I mean, he had like floppy dark hair. He was wearing like no shirt. He had a six pack. He was holding a skateboard and a beer. He looked like a real piece of shit, just my type. And this guy in front of me, he looked like a peeled potato in like a sleeveless flannel. You know, he had this like sweaty shaved head. He had a like permanently greasy shine and he had those crazy eyes, the kind that like don't blink enough and look way too deep into you. And I know that, you know, we are more than our looks. So I still invited him in because we did have a lot of other stuff in common, mostly a mutual love of the same drugs, which he had brought with him. So I was cool hanging out as friends. <laughs> and he was okay with that, too. Like, he was fine just being friends. And we got to be pretty good friends. We hung out a lot. So one night we're hanging out and I am like yet again bitching about being broke See, my husband and I had split up when I was working on the road, and he drained our bank account before I had got home, so I was still playing catch-up financially, and my money was coming in from really bad comedy gigs and selling cheap weeds, so I was living pretty hand-to-mouth. Things were not, um, they weren't getting comfortable fast. So I'm bitching about it, and James says, do you just want to work for me? And it wasn't until that moment that I realized that I didn't know what he did for a living. I had no idea. I knew that he didn't go to an office. I knew he didn't have a set schedule. And I'd never heard him talk about a boss. So I assumed he sold drugs. But I wanted to know like what kind before I agreed to do it. Because I won't sell meth. I mean, I don't want to be part of the problem, you know. But if it's like good weed or if it's like mushrooms or acid or even just like really, really good blow... I can do that. <laughs> so he says, I'm a racker. And I didn't know what that was, but like racking to me, like racks or like shelves. So I say, are you a, like a stock boy? Like you fill shelves? And he laughs at me and he goes, no, it's the opposite. So racking is blatant theft from big box stores. He just would go in, fill up a cart, walk out and turn around and sell that shit on eBay. And it sounds pretty badass, right? But I should let you know, like, at this point that he didn't steal badass shit. James did not steal, like, TVs from Best Buy. James did not steal guns from a sporting goods store. James stole scrapbooking supplies from Hobby Lobby <laughs> and Michael's and, like, Joanne Fabric and Craft and Bed Bath & Beyond. Apparently, like, those scissors that make the fancy edges are, those are big business. Uh, and he, he needed me to take the place that his ex-girlfriend used to do, the, do the job that she used to do. He needed me to be a distraction, distraction of the employee that would be working in that department uh, while he would fill up his cart. He needed me to get that employee away. And then he needed me to trigger the automatic sensor on the entrance door so that he could walk out of those, avoiding the security towers that are at the exit doors. Before I go on, I just want to like give a little disclaimer. I, I would never, ever steal from a mom and pop shop. Never. And I would never steal from an individual. I, I don't even look through people's medicine cabinets when I go to parties. But I'm like a little bit of an anarchist. And if you give me the opportunity to stick a fist up the ass of big business, I'm going to take it every time. And I mean, fucking Hobby Lobby, come on. Dangle the carrot, you know? 
The thing is, I'm also a very nervous person. I know it's hard to believe. I sound very cool, but I'm not. I'm very nervous. Like, I talk too much. I laugh. I drop shit. Uh, so I didn't think I was going to be able to do it as much as I wanted to. I just told him, I was like, I don't think I'm your girl for it. And he said, what about if I give you a Klonopin before we go? <laughs> so I was down to try it. Now, he wanted us to have a backstory, like we're a couple and we're going shopping together for my cousin's bridal shower. And that's what I would tell the employee, which usually in the scrapbooking department, usually that's where they put the oldest woman working there. They put her there. It's like this metaphorical, put them out to pasture, just scrapbooking department. No one's going to need their help. And so I would, I would feel kind of good about it because I would go up to the woman and I, she'd always be so excited. You know, I would say, excuse me, I'm planning my cousin's bridal shower and I want to do something kind of special for the invitations and like the place cards. Do you have any ideas? Do you have any suggestions? And like the way their faces lit up. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> you can see me. <laughs> and they would always like grab my hand and rush me off to the specialty paper aisle uh, away from James, you know, and they'd be pointing out like, oh, well, there's, there's this paper and it's like pink and there's white paper and there's stickers and there's, there's little bows. And, and then he would call me and I'd pull out my phone and I'd look at it. And I would say, oh, excuse me, I really have to take this call, but I want to go outside so I can hear. Uh, can you just wait for me right here? Just wait right here, and I will be back in just a minute. And then I would go out to the little lobby bay uh, between the entrance and the exit doors, and I'd talk on my fake phone call until I would see James walking towards the entrance door with his full cart. I would step on the sensor. He would come right out. We would fill up the trunk real fast and hit the road, just Bonnie and Clyde, off to the next Hobby Lobby. He was really cool about it. And like I told you, I'm so nervous. Like, he was so cool. And I didn't understand how he could be so cool. So I asked him, I was like, how the fuck do you do this? And he said that you have to go into it with a mindset that this is already your stuff. You're just going in there to take your stuff back. I needed the Kalanapin. The Kalanapin worked for me. So, and we worked well together. We worked very well together. And we hit like all the stores we could in Kansas City. And then we made a big run from Kansas City to St. Louis the next. And we hit like every stop on the highway, every craft store we could, every big box craft store until his trunk was too full. And then we come back and he pays me a thousand dollars out of the fifteen hundred that he figures he would owe me for my part in the haul we got that day. Uh, he drops me off at home. And then he went off to um, do a pill deal because, of course, he did also sell drugs. Uh, I'm sure you already knew that, though. So he calls me a few hours later, and he's bragging about it. And he goes, I just made $2,500 selling Oxy. Would you fuck me for $2,500? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And normally... When I say that, people seem shocked. And I don't, I don't understand that. That's a lot of money to do something that I had always done for free. I mean, for, well, okay, for validation, but like not for anything tangible. I'm not a girl that men spend money on, never have been. You know, they don't buy dinner. They don't bring flowers. And when you think about it, with the money that I have sunk into my own fuckability, with like hair, makeup, clothes, 
etc. Even buying them drinks at a bar in hopes that they'll come home with me later. You can't tell me that I can't make a return on my investment. You know, that's, that's, that's shitty economics. You can't tell me that. What you call prostitution, I call reparations. Now, he also didn't expect me to say yes, because he kind of like stammered about, he was like, oh, uh, well, I, um, I don't, I don't have 2,500 in cash. Uh, (laughs) would you fuck me for $500? And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 I would, yeah. To put it in perspective, my rent at the time was $450. It seemed like a really good deal. But I did want to get some like clarification. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to get fucked, um, like, so to speak, in the loopholes, you know? So I said, wait, how many times do I have to do it? And he says, that's your call. So I'm like, okay, once. And he said, well, no, for $500, I want more than once. And I was like, okay, twice. And he says, okay. And I said, all right, I won't do anal. And he says, okay, that's your call. You make the rules. What? I make the rules? So I'm going to get $500. I get to make the rules. I'm not going to get penalized for not doing things that I don't want to do. I mean, I don't know, but it almost sounds more empowering than the shit I've been doing for free. Back to the story, though. I decide to kind of push it just to kind of see, like, you know, let's see how far. So I'm like, I'm not sucking anything. And he says, okay, (laughs) really? Okay. All right. Great. Fine. So we decide on a time and I went about getting ready and I like, I really dressed what I thought the part was. I wore this turquoise suede mini skirt that was left over from my days as a prison girlfriend with this like (laughs) black (laughs) bodysuit. Maybe that's a story for my fourth risk and these like big gold earrings. And I wore my highest heels at the time, which looking back on it were like embarrassingly low, you know, having worked deeper into the sex industry. Now I can say they were probably like mother of the bride height, but I went over to his place and I was nervous. I mean, like, don't think I wasn't nervous. I already said I'm a nervous person. So I got super high before I went over there. And uh, I get there and he pays me right away because I told him he had to, because that is what the internet said when I Googled how to be a prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) He gave me like a handful of Klonopin as kind of like a tip. I brought two condoms because I agreed to do it twice and we went to his bedroom and we got right to it. I undressed with like no flair. I laid down and I just let him have sex with me. And it didn't really, it didn't feel like anything, you know, it didn't feel good. It didn't feel bad. It just, it didn't feel like anything, no reflection on him. And it was over as fast as it started. And then we get started on the second time and about midway through, he has to pee. And so he takes off the condom. And when he comes back from the bathroom, he looks at me and I'm like, I don't have another. I only brought two and he didn't have any. So I just got up and left. I got up, got dressed and I left and I felt really good about it. You know, I felt like I had got one over on him, like I'd won. But in my self-congratulating, I I didn't realize that a master never teaches enough to be overtaken by the student. They never give you everything they know. 
Think about the Karate Kid. Mr. Miyagi did not teach Daniel enough to kick his ass. And James was like my Mr. Miyagi. He was like my professor of dirtbaggery, you know? He taught me how to be a real criminal. He wasn't going to let me get one over on him. And that was his final lesson to me. Because when he skipped town a few days later, moving back to, you know, his home state of Florida, it was like, where else would he be from? Yeah. Uh, sorry, no shade. Uh, <laughs> he still owed me $500 from that 1500 shoplifting spree and I was pissed like I was hot I was mad but I had to get over it because it's not like there's anything else I can do about it you know you can't sue somebody for ill-gotten gains Mm -hmm. so I had to get over it and I had to start looking at it like that $500 was tuition you know Mm -hmm. like he taught me something about myself he taught me that I could compartmentalize business sex from pleasure fucking And with that knowledge, I went back to Craigslist and I went on to make so much more than the $500 I lost. And that, I think, is truly a happy ending. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Out the corner of my eye, I saw a pretty little thing approaching me. She said, I never seen a man who looks so all alone. Or could you use a little company? If you pay the right price, your evening will be nice and you can go and send me on my way. I said, You're such a sweet young thing, why you do this to yourself? She looked at me and this is what she said Oh, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Money don't grow on trees. I got That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Cage the Elephant behind me now, and we just heard from Susanna Lee, who you can find at bradpittdickpics.com. I'll tell you, she mentioned um, the karate kid there. The first job I ever had, I was 16 years old, working at this little movie house. And for the longest time, we had the movie The Karate Kid there. And I memorized the length of time into the movie it is when he goes into his crane stance at the end. I had to run away and leave the the popcorn counter unattended to run into the theater and catch him doing that every goddamn time we showed the movie. Because I thought he looked so hot when he did that. Okay, and before Susanna, we heard, well, we heard the last hosting segment that I did. So why am I even talking about that? Folks, don't forget to pitch us and always be telling your friends to pitch us. Whether it's a three-minute long anecdote or a full-length story, think of a time in life when you were especially scared. Or maybe a time you got injured. Maybe a time you were over the moon, thrilled and inspired. Or the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you. A time you were furious. A time you deeply regret. We can help you turn those memories into stories. And everything you need to know about it is at risk-show.com slash 
submissions. Don't forget all our socials on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And over on Twitter, check out Story Studio NYC. Did you know you can text back and forth with me at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. The way it works is I text about behind the scenes stuff happening at risk and then fans who get the text can text me back and then privately I can text them back, carry on conversations. That's at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. And if you're interested in my teaching, in my personal one-on-one consultations about storytelling, all that sort of training with me personally is at kevinallison.com Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. You know there ain't no rest for the wicked Money don't grow on trees We got bills to pay We got miles to feed There ain't nothing in this world for free I know we can't slow down We can't hold back Though you know we wish we could I'm very much focused lately on new attitudes, new strategies, new possibilities for 2020 <laughs> only, got, only got me so far. <laughs> <laughs>